Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Ve afdolu salati ve etemmü teslim ala seyyidina Muhammedin sadiqil emin. Ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve man istenne bi sünnetihi ila yumiddin. Allahümme alimna ma yanfa'una ve anfa'na bima allamtana ve zidna min fadlika ilman ve ta'lima inneke ala kulli şeyin qadir ve ba'd. Alhamdulillah, we've reached lesson 65 in the Radiant Light, studying the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And we've covered the lead up to the Battle of Badr and the battle itself. And we're now looking at the post-battle situation. Whoever's upstairs, you're playing something and it's uh, playing back my own words, which is a little distracting. <laughs> okay, we'll start over again. We can edit this. Bismillah. So Alhamdulillah, as we said, we're covering the lead up. We covered the lead up to the ballot of Badr. We covered the details about the ballot itself and all of the events that took place. And we're now looking at the post-battle situation. How many days did the Muslims remain in Badr after the battle was completed? Three days. And we mentioned last week that they remained in Badr for three days, mainly to bury the shuhada, the martyrs. How many were there? Fourteen. To bury the martyrs and to also bury the deceased, those who were slain among the mushrikun, who did not receive the same kind of burial the Muslims received, they were put into this well and it was sealed. And the last reason they remained three days in Badr was strategic because they wanted to make sure that Quraysh made their way in retreat all the way to Mecca. They wanted to make sure that they didn't try to regroup and launch a counterattack after they fled in defeat. So that was a strategic decision to remain for those three days. Now in the seerah of the Prophet wasallam, I think now you understand probably with a bit more clarity why in the old works of seerah, they were not called seerah, but they were called maghazi. We talked about that. How in the latter seerah tradition, there was a distinction between the maghazi genre and the seerah genre where one is pertaining to battles and the other is about the life in general. But you see now how much the Maghazi show us the life, the events, the sacrifices, as well as the, the revelation of rulings. A lot of that is couched within the events leading up to, during and after the key battles in Islam. So we are here three days into or three days post-victory. Remember, at this time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had not yet revealed verses of Qur'an pertaining to ghanima, the spoils of war, or verses pertaining to the captives. So these two issues arose in this battle of Badr. What do you do with the spoils of war? And what do you do with the captives? And that's what we're going to look at today. 
And this is uh, a very significant area in the seerah because it involves a very deep and detailed analysis of certain theological and legal issues, right? Uh, so let's go to the, the ghana'im first. The ghanima, the spoils of war. Now we mentioned before how in the previous nations, particularly Bani Israel, it was forbidden for Bani Israel to make use of the ghanima. So this is a, a community that has a long line of prophets. And those prophets were also the political leaders, the temporal rulers of them as well. They would lead their people into battle against uh, idolatrous tribes and peoples. And of course, in the context of battle, the vanquishing force will have access to the resources left behind by the vanquished enemy. So after the battle, those, the people of Bani Israel fighting under the leadership of those prophets were not allowed to take the spoils of war for personal use. Even if you were in the battle in that time and you took someone down in battle one-on-one, -on -one, you were not allowed to take that person's belongings, take their armor or whatever and claim it for yourself. They were required to gather all of the ghana'im all of the resources captured in battle, put it into a huge pile, and because these are individuals with anbiya, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would destroy the spoils of war uh, through a fire. The hadith mentions it would come as a fire. Think of it like a, a thunderbolt or a lightning bolt that strikes it, creating a fire, destroying it. They were not allowed to use the ghana'im. However, the ghanima was permitted for the Prophet ﷺ and his ummah. And this is one of the khasais, one of the unique things given to the Prophet ﷺ and by extension given to the ummah. That they were allowed and they are allowed to make use of the ghanaim, the spoils of war. And these things were not permitted for the previous nations. But as of yet, the verses detailing the ghana'im have yet to be revealed by Allah Ta'ala to the heart of His Prophet Sallallahu It's going to happen here. So there's a background to all of that. After the Battle of Badr, some of the Muslims who were responsible for guarding the Prophet Sallallahu the Huras, they expressed their desire to get a share of the spoils because while they're guarding the Prophet Sallallahu they're not engaging with the enemy here and there. So they're not getting an opportunity to engage in direct combat and take whatever spoils they get in the aftermath. Whereas those who are not guarding the Prophet ﷺ, but who are scattered here and there fighting the enemy directly, they take whatever spoils they acquire through combat. So the guards were saying, well, we should get some as well. The only reason we're not out there in the fray is because we're guarding the Prophet ﷺ when he's here. So we should also have a share of that. And those who were in direct combat and who captured armor and weaponry and stuff like that, they didn't want to give up what they captured, understandably. They, they got it fair and square through combat. So they didn't want to give up what 
they captured. So there became a back and forth. We wouldn't necessarily call it arguing, but, you know, tensions sometimes rise because we're human beings. So there's a back and forth between the guards who didn't get anything and then those who did get some things. And it was at this moment, as they were going back and forth, that Allah Ta'ala revealed verses in the Qur'an. And these verses are the verses in the beginning verse in Suratul Al-Anfal. And now Suratul Al-Anfal, the, the, names, the name of the chapter is the spoils. It is about the spoils of war. And almost the entirety of Suratul Al-Anfal is about Badr, what led up to Badr and the aftermath. If you take Adi Imran, verses of Adi Imran, and verses of, of Anfal together, you have almost the entire account of, of Ghazwatu Badr. It's all there. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in Surah Al-Anfal, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْأَنْفَالِ قُلِ الْأَنْفَالُ لِلَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَأَصْلِحُوا ذَاتَ بَيْنِكُمْ وَأَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَالرَّسُولَ إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ they ask you, they ask you about the spoils of war. How many verses in the Quran begin with that phrase? There are so many. Right? Right? They that, that that theme is throughout the Quran. They ask you. They knew that they asked him. So why is Allah mentioning they ask you? They know that they asked him. Allah reveals yes alunak, emphasizing that he sallallahu alayhi wasallam is the wasita. He is the means of receiving this guidance from Allah Ta'ala because the Quran is revealed to his heart. He express he reads it on his blessed tongue, and they receive the guidance through him. Right? We don't de-emphasize the person of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know, some people do that subtly. They say, well, you know, it's just us and Allah, right? It's just us and Allah. Because Allah says, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِ عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ When my servants ask you about me, إِنِّي قَرِيبٌ I am close. But they're reading the verse but not understanding the verse. Because what does the verse actually say? When they ask whom? When they ask you. وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ When they ask you about me. So he's the wasita, the means of conveying the guidance of Allah Ta'ala. Right? يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْأَنْفَالِ They ask you about the spoils of war. Say, the decision about the spoils is for Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ultimately, it's the decision of Allah. Why does Allah say Allah and His Messenger? Again, because it's revealed to Him and communicated by Him. So, Rasuli. So, it's the decision made by Allah and His Messenger. So, fear Allah and aslihu, uh, make peace and amend, fix what is between you, because they were disputing a little bit and obey Allah and his messenger if you are indeed believers this is the verse re revealed in the beginning of surah al-anfal Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is instructing the, the community 
to put brotherhood and unity over any disputes regarding the spoils. And that's a theme that should apply to everything in our community life. Are we always going to agree on every single matter? No. Even in religious matters, we're going to have legitimate differences of opinion in the matters that are based on ijtihad, right? But even in administrative decisions, right, managerial decisions, um, just choices and preferences and ideas, people differ about what is the best course of action or the best approach to dealing with things, right? And those things are not negated, but we have to find a way to work through them and the only way we can work through them is if the priority is brotherhood and unity. If that is the priority, you solve it through that framework. You don't just try to solve it at any cost just to get your way. You have to solve it in a way that keeps the ties of brotherhood preserved. And that's the essential message conveyed here. That the decision is to Allah and His Messenger. So have taqwa of Allah and fix what is between you. They decide, and brotherhood and unity takes priority over anything regarding the spoils of war. After this, further on in the chapter, Allah Ta'ala explains some of the details about the spoils of war. And it's a somewhat complex fiqhi discussion because there's other details revealed later. But the basic structure is that you have the khumus, you have the one-fifth of the spoils. So let's imagine after a battle, the Muslim army has captured uh, X amount of war material, financial resources, equipment, and the like. They've captured this after the battle. Assuming it's all put in one place and it's, it can be divided, one-fifth of that is what we call the khumus, and that is divided into five separate shares. The khumus, the one-fifth of that, is divided into five shares and given to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, number one, and then the Alul Bayt, the descendants of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And here it's not the, the narrowest definition, it's a little more expansive. Then it goes to the orphans, the, the Yatama, then it goes to the masakin, the, those who are in the legal, legal category of poor. Uh, and here we make a distinction between fuqara and masakin, like we do in zakat. And masakin are people who don't have even their daily bread. And then the travelers and the wayfarers, the ibn sabil, who don't have any money, who get stranded. So very similar to the recipients of zakat, except the al-bayt. The al-bayt don't receive zakat. They can receive gifts or they receive the khumus. So the khumus is what is taken from the ghanima. It's one-fifth. So of the one-fifth, you have uh, five shares. And that's 4% each. And that's 20% basically. So the 80% remaining, guess where that goes? It goes to the fighters. Now, this is distributed equally. However, there are some details that... Uh, were later revealed, giving different divisions of Ghanima based on who is uh, infantry, a foot soldier, and who's cavalry, who's on a horse or a camel or the like. So there's some differences 
based on the role they're playing in the battle itself. That's not really something we're going to go into. But this is the initial revelation about the Ghanima, right? And the Prophet Sallallahu says, and this is a hadith that uh, many people don't know. The Prophet Sallallahu he was, what did he do? Before I get to the hadith, what did he do in Mecca as a young man? What was his occupation? He was He was a shepherd. This is how he made money. After that, how did he make his money? As a merchant, right? He was engaged in these trade caravans. Now, in Medina, how was the Prophet ﷺ making his money? Did he have a job? Was he working in the, the date palm groves, harvesting dates and selling them? No, he was not. So how did he make his money? Now, obviously, in that time, you don't need a nine-to-five. Right? You don't have constant, you don't have a thousand different bills and people tugging at you for money, right? You build a house, it's done, right? There's no electricity, no, no bills. But how do you make money? How did he make money? Well, the Prophet ﷺ told us. He says, My provision was placed beneath the shadow of my spear my provision was placed beneath the shadow of my spear meaning this is the avenue of risk that was allowed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala permitted by him for the Prophet so when this happened this verse was revealed the ghanima was distributed equally Everyone who participated got a share equally. And nine people received a share of this ghanima who were not even at Badr. Who were those nine? Those are the nine people we mentioned before who were intending to go to, Al- to Badr, but who were prevented due to legitimate excuses. Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu, for instance, why wasn't he able to go? He was looking after the daughter of the Prophet Sallallahu who was gravely ill. And he intended to go out. He was only held back because he's looking after his beloved wife and the beloved daughter of Rasulullah Sallallahu Were it not for that, he would have been there. So he received a share for his niyyah. And there's some subtleties here we'll get into later about why he was doing that and what happened when he was in Medina and what happened when the Muslims returned. Probably next week we'll talk about that because there's, there's a very powerful lesson in him staying behind and what happened with her when the Muslims returned to Medina. But he received that among eight others, received their share because they all had legitimate excuses. So that's the first issue here in the aftermath of Badr, the division of the Ghanima. We said that before this happened, now, this is the first time there's spoils of war and nothing was revealed prior to this. But now we have revelation. Another thing that happened for the very first time at Badr, for which there was no revelation yet, was the captives, the prisoners of war, the POWs. Because we mentioned that there were between 50 and 70 of Quraysh slain in battle. 
They were killed in battle. And there were about 70 or so who were taken as prisoners of war. So they're captured. They didn't kill them. They were captured. They're prisoners. Now, this is a very important topic because there's a lot of theological implications behind it and what happened. So let's start with the hadith recorded by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad from Sayyiduna Anas radiallahu anhu. Sayyiduna Anas radiallahu anhu says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had asked the people's opinion about the captives taken at Badr. The people. And he said sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah has left it for you to decide their fate. Who is he addressing? It's addressing the Badriyun, the people of Badr. Allah has left it to you to decide their fate. Pay very close attention to this hadith. Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu, he stood up and he said, you know what he's going to say. Whenever you have these hadith, and it says, وَقَامُ Umar." You could just stop there and fill in the blanks. You know, because this is Umar. He says, Ya Rasulullah, strike their necks. These are the people who did all of those things we discussed in the Meccan period. He says, strike their necks. The Prophet ﷺ turns away from Umar. And then he repeats, O people, Allah has given you to decide their fate. But then he adds something. He says, Allah has given you to decide their fate. And just yesterday, they were your brothers. Yes, they did all those things, but they're still your brothers. Tribes and clans, they're your kin. They're still your people, right? They're not so dehumanized where you don't see them as human beings. And they're not so dehumanized where you don't see them as your own tribesmen your own kin, your own flesh and blood. That's the message. So then, Omar stood up again and he said, Ya Rasulullah, strike their necks. But the Prophet ﷺ turned away from him and he repeated his words again. O people, Allah has given for you to decide their fate. At this part, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu stands up and he says, Ya Rasulullah, we think that you should be lenient to them and accept ransoms for them. Allow their families, allow their tribes to pay their ransom for their freedom and we get money, we'll, we'll, we'll get wealth. That was what Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said. When Abu Bakr said this, the hadith in the Musnad says that the concern that was on the face of the Prophet ﷺ left. And then he relented towards them and accepted giving them over, these prisoners, giving them over in return for ransoms. This is the hadith. And shortly after this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed more verses in Surah Al-Anfal. And in Surah Al-Anfal, we find the words of Allah, مَا كَانَ لِنَبِيٍّ أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُ أَسْرَى حَتَّى يُثْخِنَ فِي الْأَرْضِ تُرِيدُونَ عَرَضَ الدُّنْيَا وَاللَّهُ يُرِيدُ الْآخِرَةِ وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ 
لولا كتاب من الله سبق لمسكم فيما أخذتم عذاب عظيم Allah Ta'ala revealed to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam it is not fitting for a Prophet that he should take captives until he has thoroughly subdued the land subdued you believers settled or desired the fleeting gains of the dunya the world while Allah desires for you the hereafter and Allah is almighty and wise were it not for a prior decree of Allah you would surely have been visited by an awful punishment on account of what you took this is what we have to focus on from now until the end of this class what does this verse mean what's going on here is it a rebuke and if so to whom there's a lot of issues here and it's important to get us a sound understanding of it does this verse mean that the prophet sallallahu made a mistake that he erred in his judgment in siding with abu bakr to ransom them and not uh, put them to the sword as Omar suggested did he err in his judgment and got, and, get, and then got corrected by Allah Ta'ala by means of Quran what's going on here well before we can talk about that we have to cover a few preliminary topics first issue is the issue of ijtihad for the Prophet what is ijtihad Ijtihad, we're going we're gonna to translate that as an independent judgment in the absence of anything explicit. An independent judgment in the absence of explicit uh, nusus. Right? So ijtihad, istifraq al-wusr, to expend one's effort to arrive at a sound judgment in the absence of something explicit about that particular matter. So the question is... Uh, does the Prophet ﷺ ever engage in that kind of ijtihad? Right, this is a very advanced and nuanced discussion found in the books of Kalam and Usul. And it's a specialist kind of topic. It's reserved for the intermediate and advanced books. But we'll summarize it. There are a number of views. There are those among the Usuliyun who say, it is possible that the Prophet ﷺ can exercise ijtihad in the absence of a clear revealed text. And they say that that exercise of ijtihad itself is an act of ibadah. Because it is for an act, a mujtahid, right? A scholar who's a mujtahid. If he expends his effort to arrive at a judgment and he's correct, he receives two rewards. You, the reward is for an ibadah, right? So some say that yes, he does exercise ijtihad and yata'abbadullah bid ijtihad. Other Usudi scholars say no, the Prophet ﷺ does not exercise ijtihad because everything that comes from him is inspired by Allah Ta'ala. Ijtihad is in the absence of inspiration. Ijtihad is in the absence of revelation, right? That's, that's the understanding. Now, for those who say that ijtihad is possible, there's a further difference of opinion. Did it occur? 
So some of them say, yes, it's possible that the Prophet ﷺ could make ijtihad. But some say, although it's possible, it never happens. And then some say, which is the majority, they say, yes, it's possible. And yes, it happened. And many of them cite this incident as an example. And those who say that it's possible and that it happened, they have a further difference of opinion. If it's possible for the Prophet ﷺ to exercise ijtihad, and if it's possible, uh, and if it happened that he did exercise ijtihad, is it possible that he could err in his ijtihad? So some say it's possible and it happened, but it's impossible that he could err in his ijtihad. And then, yes, there are some who say that it's possible, it happened, and it is possible in, that he erred in his ijtihad. And this is a view. It's a, it's a qawl, but it's not the qawl that we would, would support. So before we look at the actual issue of the captives of Badr, we have to understand this topic. Can the Prophet ﷺ err in ijtihad? Let's assume that it is possible for the Prophet ﷺ to exercise ijtihad in the absence of clear, revealed text about uh, a particular issue, which is, so it's, that's debatable, right? But let's assume for argument's sake that it's possible. Is it possible for the Prophet ﷺ to err in his judgment based on ijtihad? I quote to you the words of one of the great usulis, one of the great imams, al-imam al-subki, who says in his masterful work on usul, the relied upon work that is studied across Madahib, Jam'un Jawami'. He mentions in this work, this masterpiece of Usul al Fiqh, he says, Wasawab anna ijtihadahu la yukhti, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wasawabu anna ijtihadahu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam la yukhti. And the sound position is that his ijtihad can never err. Does not err. And this position that ijtihad is possible but that he can never err in his ijtihad is the position of Imam al-Subki as we see is also the position of his Imam who is the Imam of Imam al-Subki ultimately his Imam in fiqh Imam Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i radiallahu an. this is uh, ascribed to Imam al-Shafi'i by many of the great Shafi'i Imams this is the position of Imam Shafi'i as well. As well as the position of Imam Ibn Fawraq, who was a great Shafi'i scholar. He says, He is protected from error in his judgments, just as he is protected from error in his words. That's what Ibn Fawraq says. Likewise, Imam Fakhruddin al-Razi, rahimahullah, he takes this position too. That the Prophet ﷺ can make ijtihad, but he cannot err in his ijtihad. He says, if we concur that he has ijtihad, the truth according to us is that it's not permissible for him to err in his ijtihad. Qalahu fil mahsul. That's what he says. Likewise, this is the position of Imam al-Baydawi. These are great imams. Uh, you know, if you study some usul, you recognize these names. These are not lightweight names. These are heavyweight imams. 
their words have weight in matters of usul. Imam al-Baydawi in his minhaj says the same thing. Likewise, Taj al-Subki says the same thing. And Imam al-Zarkashi says the same thing. Imam ibn al-Hajib says the same thing. And Imam al-Wali al-Iraqi says the same thing. And Imam Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti says the same thing. And Imam Jalal al-Din al-Mahalli says the same thing. This is the position of so many great Imams uh, of Usul al-Fiqh that the ijtihad of the Prophet cannot err. So let's go back to the issue of the captives. If we agree that he can make ijtihad, and if we agree, if we side with these scholars that the, the ijtihad cannot be wrong, how do we understand the incident of the captives of Badr? Did the Prophet err in his judgment? The answer is no. Not just because of the usuli basis, but because the incident itself proves that it was not an error of his personal judgment. And this is what we want to explore. Anyone who reflects on the story of the captives of Badr will see that the Prophet is not just free from error, he's completely right in what he did. He was completely correct in what he did. And we can see that as we parse the story and look at it point from point. So, the Prophet ﷺ came to this decision how? He came to this decision not of his own accord. He came to this decision after discussing it with the Sahaba, telling them, that he is to consult them about the matter of the captives of Badr. So he is fulfilling the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who says to him, fil amr," And consult with them in the matter. Allah told him to consult with the, with the Sahaba in the matter. So he's fulfilling that divine command. He hears the view of Sayyidina Umar who says, strike their necks. He hears the view of Sayyidina Abu Bakr who says, release them and we get a ransom so he inclines to the view of Abu Bakr which is to ransom them and the scholars say that this is because the asal you know the the state of the Prophet Sallallahu is a way of rahmah mercy and leniency that is the basis on which he operates that's the the reflection of his essential quality that is the maqam that Allah placed him in. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ Allah says, we have not sent you except as a mercy to the worlds. So, it's understandable that he inclines to that view because that's the asl. That's the asl, which is mercy and leniency. So, his action was fulfilling the command of Allah to consult with them, his view inclined to Abu Bakr's view because that's already the default for him, which is mercy and leniency. Likewise, when you look at these verses, you see that the action of the Prophet ﷺ agreeing to ransom them was in agreement with, with what was already decreed in the Qadr, the divine decree. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed in his pre-eternal knowledge 
that the ghanima is to be made lawful for the Prophet and his community alone and forbidden to those nations that came before him. Where do we get that from? We get it directly from the verse. Because in that verse, in Surah Al-Anfal, Allah says, لَوْ لَا كِتَابٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ سَبَقَ لَمَسَّكُمْ فِيمَا أَخَذْتُمْ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ Which means, were it not for a prior kitab from Allah, you all would have suffered a painful punishment due to what you have taken. So, what is this kitab? This kitab is referring to the qadr. The, what has been decreed by Allah Ta'ala in pre-eternity, that the ghanima will be made halal for the Prophet Sallallahu and his ummah and not for the previous ummah. So that is the kitabun min Allahi sabaqa, a prior decree of Allah. So the primordial decree of Allah Ta'ala is that the ghanima and the captives are lawful for the Prophet Sallallahu and not lawful for others. So not only that, but it corresponds to what is uh, legalized in this very verse. So just as the Prophet's acceptance of the ransom was in accordance with Kitabun min Allahi sabaqa, the prior decree of Allah, his decision to accept ransom is also in agreement with the sacred ordinance revealed in the Quran, in this verse. Because in the very same set of verses, Allah Ta'ala says, فَكُلُوا مِمَّا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ So in the very same set of verses, you know, we see what looks like a rebuke. But then Allah says that were it not for a prior decree, you all would have been punished for what you had taken. And then Allah says, فَكُلُوا مِمَّا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا So take what you have uh, received of spoils as something halal and, and good. That includes the captives, by the way. The spoils is not just the materials, the people, right? Because you ransomed them. So the very same set of verses legalizes this action. So how can something, this is what the ulama say, how can something that was in accordance with kitabun min Allahi sabaq, a prior decree of Allah in his qadr, and which is in agreement with ash-shari'atu al-munazzala, the revealed law, how can that be a mistake? How can it be a mistake to accept ransom for these individuals, these captives, when it's a prior decree, when it's allowed directly in the verse itself? How is it an ijtihad that went wrong? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordained it and permitted it. He gave his approval. So the revelation of the lawfulness of taking the spoils here, فَكُلُوا مِمَّا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا is an affirmation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this is permissible. If you look at the the verse immediately before it, the part where Allah Ta'ala mentions this prior decree, where He says, لَوْلَا كِتَابٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ سَبَقَ لَمَسَّكُمْ فِيمَا أَخَذْتُمْ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ Were it not for a prior decree of Allah, you would have suffered a painful punishment for what you have taken. Number one, who is being addressed here? 
is, is this addressed to the Prophet Sallallahu Antum Allah Ta'ala is addressing the Ummah Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, he says about this part of the verse he says Kitabun min Allahi sabaqa the prior decree of Allah is stating that taking the ghanima and the captives is halal for you the Muslims and were it not decreed as halal for you in the Kitabun min Allahi sabaqa the prior decree of Allah you would have been punished for doing this right after that, it's made explicitly halal. فَكُلُوا مِنْ مَا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا Not just halal, but also pure. And the halal is pure, and the pure is halal. But this is an emphasis on the fact that this is something lawful, legalized, permitted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, even if you, when you look at the structure of the verse, it seems like a rebuke. And it is, but... It's not a rebuke to the Prophet ﷺ. It can't be because of the reasons that we mentioned. Had he been mistaken in siding with Abu Bakr and ransoming the prisoners of Badr, if that was wrong for him, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sanction it in the Quran by saying, take what you have from the ghanima halal and tayyibah? Remembering that ghanima here is not just the material, the armor, it also includes the money acquired by ransoming these prisoners, right? So, there are among some usulis who say the Prophet ﷺ can make ijtihad, and it's possible, some of them say, that he can err in his ijtihad, but even those scholars, they say that if it was an error, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it would be momentarily and Allah ta'ala would correct him on the spot and it would be basically be a learning experience for the Prophet sallallahu That's what those who say that it's possible for ijtihad to err, they say it would only be temporary. But does that even apply here according to the proponents of that view? Even those who have that view would look at this and say, no, you can't say that it's a mistake and was corrected momentarily. No, because Allah endorsed the action. How is something endorsed by Allah considered rebuked and then corrected? It doesn't make any sense. So, to piece this together, is the verse rebuking anyone? Yes. But it's not the Prophet ﷺ. The act of ransoming the prisoners was lawful. It was decreed it was allowed in the verse itself and it's not a rebuke of the prophet it is a rebuke towards certain individuals if it was an error on the part of the prophet to side with the view of abu bakr and ransom those prisoners if that was an error allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have also commanded him to return the ransoms and to seek forgiveness from Allah for the wrong he had done by taking them. But there's no such correction. There's no such command to return the ransoms. If it was wrong, he'd have to return the ransoms. But no such demand was made. Rather, Allah says, فَكُلُوا مِنْ مَا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا Enjoy the spoils you've taken as lawful and wholesome. So, likewise, 
how can the Prophet ﷺ be wrong in siding with Abu Bakr and ransoming these prisoners when he was commanded by Allah Ta'ala to give the decision to the companions? Allah told him to give the decision to them. Their decision was between Umar saying slay them and Abu Bakr saying ransom them. And Allah Ta'ala says, وَشَاوِرْهُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ As we mentioned, uh, consult with them in the matter. So, this at least establishes that there's no error on the part of the Prophet ﷺ in his judgment. But it doesn't answer the question about the rebuke. Is there a rebuke in the verse? Yes, there is. But who is being rebuked? What are they being told? We go back to this verse. Allah says, it is not for the, a prophet to hold captives until he has subdued the land. Subdued here means he's put them down and defeated them decisively. He has crushed the enemy decisively in a decisive victory. It's not for a prophet to hold captives until he has done that. You would have for yourselves the gains of this world while Allah desires for you the hereafter. This is a rebuke, but not a rebuke to the Prophet ﷺ. This is a rebuke to those companions who wanted the ransom because they wanted the things of the world by that ransom. Pay very close attention to the verse. Allah Ta'ala is saying, تُرِيدُونَ عَرَضَ الدُّنْيَا وَاللَّهُ يُرِيدُ الْآخِرَةِ so among the companions who are saying ransom them, not all of them are looking for, for dunya, just material gain. Some of them are. So Allah Ta'ala is rebuking those who only wanted to ransom them for the worldly gains. He's not rebuking those who wanted to ransom them because that corresponds to the Prophet's mercy and they felt that was the best decision to make. Is criticizing those who wanted the money and that was their primary interest and it's not identifying uh, who, who they are it's expressed generally but it's expressing it in a plural form you you want the the things of this world right the temporary gains of the world and Allah Ta'ala is addressing in, in the plural Allah is not saying the Prophet ﷺ is not included in this. He's not saying you. He's saying you all in the plural form, meaning those companions who wanted the gains of the world. They wanted the wealth gained from those ransoms. So, this is not a rebuke of those who advise the ransoming for other motives. It's those who wanted dunya. So, Allah is saying, it's not for you to do this to take the captives and hold them until you have a decisive victory, you, you, addressing those people, you would want the gains of the world, but Allah wants the gains of the hereafter for you. And were it not for a prior decree, a prior decree from Allah, you would have been punished for taking that money. But it's permissible. It's permissible. There's a rebuke for something permissible. Isn't that possible? Right? Is ice cream permissible? Yes. But if someone's eating a whole gallon of ice cream, 
maybe you can rebuke them and say, you shouldn't eat so much ice cream all at once. So you can be rebuked for something that is essentially halal, right? So the Prophet ﷺ did not err in his ijtihad. If we affirm it as an ijtihad, he was commanded by Allah Ta'ala to consult the companions. He went with that view that he inclined towards because of his rahmah. The rebuke was to those who just wanted the monetary aspects, the, the financial aspects of it. And this is not a criticism or a rebuke of the Prophet Wasallam. So by saying that turiduna out of the dunya, it means they just want to gain wealth. As for the Prophet Wasallam, when he agreed, when he inclined to the view of Abu Bakr and agreed to ransom them, is it possible that he was doing that, wanting dunya? Is it possible that the Prophet ﷺ wanted the material gain of dunya by ransoming the prisoners? Absolutely not. This is the Rasulullah ﷺ. The dunya has no value for him whatsoever. It's the creation of Allah, but it has no intrinsic value. Right? That's it. Those ulama who talk about this issue, they say that even those who wanted dunya, it wasn't just dunya for the sake of living large. Right? Even then, it, it's not that they just wanted luxury. So it's a rebuke, but it's a rebuke for sahaba. There's a very high standard to be a sahabi. So it's not a rebuke for wanting money to go buy a villa and to live large and live in luxury. Because some of the ulama of tafsir say that the verse turiduna ala the dunya, it means they wanted the things of the world, meaning they wanted the money to use it for building themselves up for the hereafter. Which can be a good intention, but there's other things of, that take priority over that. You, you can't, you have to be mindful of the hierarchy of values here. So there's a lot going on here. And to kind of seal this whole thing, we have a narration that gives us clarity. In another narration, recorded by Muslim and Abu Dawood, it mentions that, and this is coming from Sayyidina Umar, the verse was revealed, and the next day, Umar goes to the Prophet ﷺ and finds him along with Abu Bakr. And the two of them are weeping, they're crying. And Umar radiallahu anhu says, uh, why are the two of you weeping? He says, if I am moved to weep, I'll weep along with you. And if not, I'll try to make myself weep so that I can weep with you. This is very beautiful. He's, he's telling the Prophet them, tell me why you're crying. And if it's something that would make me cry, I'm just going to cry. And if it's not something that would make me cry, I'll still I'll make myself cry just to be crying alongside of you. So this is what he says. And the Prophet ﷺ replied to Umar, I weep for what I have been informed of regarding the punishment of your companions for accepting the ransoms. For their punishment has been shown to me more clearly than this tree. A nearby tree he pointed at. Allah Ta'ala revealed this verse uh, mentioning this punishment were it not for a prior decree. So Allah Ta'ala revealed 
to the Prophet ﷺ, he unveiled to him what would have happened, what form the punishment would have taken in, by means of revelation or a vision. He's seeing through that vision the kind of punishment that would have seized those companions who were seeking the ransom to get the money. But the prior decree of Allah is that that ransoming is made halal and therefore they don't get punished. It is legislated and it's halal. However, there should be a decisive victory established by the Prophet ﷺ before there's any talk of ransoming people. Right? So that's kind of how you tie all of this at the end. The, the important point is that the Prophet ﷺ did not err in his ijtihad if you agree that it was an ijtihad. Um, he was instructed by Allah to seek their counsel. He sought their counsel. He inclined to the view of Abu Bakr because that's his, his rahmah. That was the view they went with. And the verse was revealed, not rebuking him for that decision, but rebuking those who agreed with that decision, but because they just wanted to have the the money aspect, the financial aspect, and not considering other other things that need to be in place and other intentions. And so that hopefully dispels the notion that he made a mistake somehow. Because some people read the verse and they read the incident and this is how they frame it. They frame it as he asked the Sahaba what, what, they, what he should do. He doesn't know what to do. And they say something, he goes with it. And Allah corrects him saying, why did you go with them? Why did you go with that decision? <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the understanding of the verse. The understanding of the <coughs> verse is as I explained. And you find this in the books of Tafsir. Also in the books of Usul. It's discussed in great detail. The most important thing we get from this story is exonerating the Prophet ﷺ from errors in ijtihad. Imam al-Sha'arani Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he talks about this in his book of Usul, Wasailul Wasul ila Maqasid al Usul. When he cites the position of Imam al Subki, he says, I fear for the Iman of the person who has the audacity to say that the Prophet makes mistakes in his judgments about these matters. Because, you know, as an Usuli issue, it does have legal implications in subtle ways, but if you discuss it in that scholarly context, you still have to be very careful how you frame your words, right? It was asked of uh, one of the great imams in India, they, they, they asked him about the ruling on saying that the clothes of the Prophet became dirty, right? So can someone say that his clothing became dirty, right? So as a question of fact, did the Prophet wrestle and fight and ride on horseback and travel? All of these things occurred. And any other human being doing these things would find that their clothes are soiled with dust and dirt. So they asked this scholar, can it be said that the clothes of the Prophet got dirty? And this Imam, he said, could they not just say that the, the dust and the soil uh, sought refuge in the clothes of the Prophet If you were a piece of dirt, wouldn't you want to be on the qamis? 
right? So it's true the dust did get on, but you don't say it in a way that seems unbecoming, right? So there's a way to talk about these things that is respectful of maqam al risal or maqam al nubuwa with janib al sharif. And that's the most important thing you should take from these kinds of discussions that you know people will differ and say this and that, but it all has to be with the utmost adab and respect. And a lot of times people who talk about these issues, they get into trouble, not because the issue itself is completely wrong, but because their tongues get so loose in talking that they say something that's disrespectful, even if they didn't intend to be disrespectful. So uh, he doesn't err in his ijtihad and this verse is actually a great honor to the Prophet sallallahu because it legalized something that's of great benefit to the ummah one of the great imams says that he knew that they would need the ghanima and the money for building their resources to confront Quraysh the next time so there was that need for these things and Allah permitted it for him to meet those needs, to face them in the next battle. Next week, inshallah, we talk about the return of Quraysh to Mecca, how the news spread in Mecca, and how the Quraysh of Mecca received this news of defeat, as well as the, the captives themselves and what happened with them, inshallah ta'ala, as the Muslims make their way back to Medina. Wallahu rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.